research? You know, how long did it take for you to do this? I mean, you know, was it like all in a row, or <laughs> was like? Uh, no, no. Actually, I've been working on it for maybe thirty years. Uh, yes, um, you know, from the seventies when I got interested in the whole thing, and was sort of uh, turned off by some of the inaccuracies in Wicked history, and I decided yes. I would go back and find out where everything came from. I actually took it all the way back to the Egyptians and Greeks, but for this particular focus, um, I decided to look into what actually happened in England and uh, concentrated on that that area and then decided to narrow it down to a controllable period of, you know, <laughs> 1550 to 1900. Yes, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking with uh, Jim Baker, the author of The Cunning Man man's handbook and this is an addition for our beloved again Avalonia books um, mm. The Practice of English Folk Magic 1550 uh, to 900 and you were talking to me saying to me that this t took it's a product of 30 years of, of research <laughs> right yes. and it's really incredible now you do have other books that people sometimes they don't really know one of them is called Plymouth and um, 2012, right? And then you'll have also another one, Plymouth Labor and, Le and Leisure. And you also have another one, which is uh, a little bit more recent, um, also Thanksgiving Revisiting New England. I think that the 2012 one is Plymouth Labor and Le Le Leisure, and then 2010 you did the Thanksgiving one, right? Yes, yes. The, the, yeah. two, the two Plymouth books are basically pictures I've always been fascinated with what Plymouth used to look like because it was changing during my own lifetime. Yes. When I was young, it looked very much the way it had in the late 19th century. And then when they had urban renewal take out a whole bunch of Plymouth, I noticed the loss, And uh, having grown up in that neighborhood. And uh, yes. so I went and down to Pilgrim Hall, looked at their old pictures, and uh, ended up identifying and you know, categorizing about 4,000 photos. So I got very familiar with the pictures of Plymouth. And <laughs> those books are what it used to look like. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Now let's look. Let's look at this fantastic book. I mean, this is a big book, Jim. <laughs> um, <very> big, yes. <laughs> it's a big book. No wonder 30 years, right, um, of work in this. And and the the thing that you know what. The, the, let me just ask the question again. Why did you uh, decided to write this? What was really the trigger here for you to get into this research? Well, there were a couple of them. The first one was, of course, when I'd learned that Wiccan history wasn't what I had thought it was, uh, I felt annoyed for being uh, tricked, you might say, and then decided, well, what was the real history? So I decided to do that, and I'd originally hoped, in a sort of vague way, doing research while I was doing research for my job elsewhere at the plantation by looking up these things in libraries in England and things like that, that uh, I would do a history of the cunning folk altogether, but I didn't, and then uh, Ronald Hutton and uh, Owen Davies came along and did the history that I had originally thought of writing vaguely, and so I thought, well, I'll make a contribution that I can. The thing about most of the books, they tell you that people did this, people did that, but they don't explain exactly what it was. They just reference it. And I thought, years ago, in fact, it was 1963, I bought a book 
uh, called Ritual Magic by E.M. Butler. And Elizabeth Butler had done, you know, a compilation of things. And I was very annoyed with it because she'd just do little short things and you couldn't tell how they tied together. And you couldn't really recreate anything from it. It was a good historical study, but it, it's like it was incomplete. And so what I decided to do was to provide full length, and they are full, <laughs> examples of everything I was talking about. And that's what bulked up the book. Yeah. Now, um, there is a question. So that that was the question, you know, that you, you, know, you actually make this in the introduction, which is, you know, you said, you know, um, what have been the magical practices of the British populace? Um, and this was, you know, really your your main. But there is another thing here, right? That we, and I'm sure that you you find this out when you did your research. There's a, l a whole lot of oral tradition that was not put down. Yes, yes, oral tradition fades. In fact, that's one of the weaknesses of oral tradition. People rely on it historically, but after about two or three generations, in other words, out of living memory. People have an inevitable tendency to edit it into what they think is now the right way to say it. And so the original is lost and it's revised, continually revised, so that oral traditions of things going way back, except for a few things like uh, genealogies, <coughs> are unreliable and uh, more or less reflect the needs and interests of the people of any particular time rather than all the way back to you know the original whatever that might have been yeah, yeah. now you talk about habitus yeah. um, and you talk about you know you take this concept of a habitus which I'm going to ask you what it is so that you can define so that we know <laughs> what it is but you talk about a habitus um, that was um, characteristic of the early modern European um, era and and that was actually Christian. So, what what is uh, this habitus that permeates all of this history of the of the cunning man? Well, a habitus is like your whole internal and external um, culture. Uh, it's what you grow up in, how you understand the world, how you look at things. Every culture has its own, and actually, every period probably has its own. It's a term that Bordeaux, um, uh, the French writer, um, came up with, or at least popularized. And it really expresses um, the almost the bounds of thinking. You can't think outside your habitus. A good example is every time, say, back in the 1950s and 60s, they wanted to show the future. It was full of planes flying everywhere and rocket ships and things like that. And a few years later, it looked so outdated because they were in their habitus. They couldn't see what the real future was. They could only understand what the future looked like to them in their own uh, conception. And so a habitus is always very limiting. Um, it makes things, um, it puts things in a certain way, and you can't think outside that box. It simply is not possible. Can we talk about Julie Verne and how he would be <laughs> outside of his own habitus at the time? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Verne, of course, um, tried. <laughs> he and H.G. Wells were probably the yes. two that were most successful in yeah. looking at the evidence and yet trying to go beyond it. But they still yeah. worked in what was known to them at their time. Right. And yeah, although true, they yeah. predicted things, all those things were in potential uh, visible in their own culture. They never mm -hmm. went outside of it, but they mm -hmm. did understand the culture well enough to know how it might proceed.
Now we talk about uh, the cunning man, and of course this is the uh, <laughs> the cunning man's handbook. And um, did this book had any other title? Was this it all along? <laughs> I actually, I had an earlier title. I can't remember what it was right now, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> it's really. I decided because of the yeah. long extracts, it could the things that could actually be used if anybody took the trouble to do so. Yes. And so I yeah. thought, well, a handbook is a good way to explain it. These are the yeah. texts that these people yeah. worked yeah. with, and it shows how they did things, and it, it explains their habitus as best possible. Yeah. And I do have a section where I try to interpret um, how they thought it might work. Uh, it's because it's never explicit and I needed it explicit in my own mind before I could examine the thing so that I put together and that you know is purely my own way of looking at things mm -mm. but the rest of it is based on historical record I don't go outside the record because outside the record is not available to us that's right yeah yeah now uh, you talk about the habitus of the early modern Europeans you also talk about that this habitus was actually Christian or rather Abrahamic, um, yeah. and there was this filter, um, and this Abrahamic filter that would, uh, you know, be inserted into anything that would be, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and all of that, that would mm. permeate across the board all of the things that we do, they, they would do. And, and we see this, you know, in, in many, many times, you know, sometimes people call it, I don't know, uh, traditional witchcraft mm. or whatever they call it, or indigenous, you know, practices or autochthonous, you know, practices of people. They are still today very much permeated by the major religion of their own countries. And I'm talking about, for instance, what I know, which is Portugal. You still today have cunning women um, talking uh, and, and doing things, you know, in, in countries like this. Um, also, uh, very much into their uh, own habitus of Christianity, or in this case, Catholicism, which is basically the, um, the religion in Portugal. Mm. Um, so, but this is... This is uh, the. Could you see here? And I think that you can sometimes. What is was or was at the time a pa the pagan vein of this and the Christian vein on top of it or that layer? Well, it's not really two veins. That's the thing. Um, Christianity had swept in, and over a thousand years, it had re-explained everything in its own terms. Mm -hmm. And although they did have the you know, and more as the time went on, uh, texts that came from Greece and Rome, um, the Arabs brought them up to modern date, and then they were taken up in uh, back in Spain and Portugal in the early years. Mm -hmm. And uh, but still, uh, it's like I have a, a simile in there somewhere that if you take all these elements and build them together, like you would build a building. And you took the stones from an ancient temple and you bought it, built a Christian church. You could say that the pieces were pagan, but the church they built it makes them no longer pagan. They're not recognized as, as outside or separate. It's all forced into the habitus or current thinking. And by 1550, there was nothing that was recognized as being outside of this. Um, they had managed to get everything, the classical culture, <coughs> from the Greeks, for example, mm 
mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. They, they, they made it into um, uh, you know, a precursor of Christianity, the Prisca Theologia, the original religion, they thought, before um, you know, Christianity came along, and Judaism was just a little piece of the picture. But since this was supposed to explain the entire world, it had to cover the entire world. All covered, of course, was Europe. It didn't cover Asia or India or anything like that. And where different habitus uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, flourished. And yet, because Christianity spoke to all reality, all reality had to be forced into this pattern. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Now you begin your book, and and you know, I just I must say that the book is very well organized. You know, <laughs> it's just very very good. Um, you begin to the f- the first thing that you do, and it's obviously you know, um, it is it's it's one of the first things that you do. Chapter three, you say, okay, let's just look at this and understand the cunning folk. Wh- who who were they, and and mm. how they actually you know, in the world. I mean, not only here, but in the world. Um, who were the cunning folk, and and do we have still cunning folk today? You think? Not in the same sense, because they were working with something that they had inherited, and it was pretty well structured, um, constructed around their their way of viewing the world. It had been more or less unchanged up until the time you hit the Enlightenment, and mm-hmm. uh, you know after the Reformation. And so the people that were working as cunning folk, if you take the term strictly, it's, the, it's people who work in the old system. Um, and then it changed, as I do in the, my little short thing about the evolution of occultism, which comes mm-hmm. out of this, of course. But by coming out, it completely transforms it. And so there are definitely people who are still working with the old systems, mostly in the powwows in, in Pennsylvania or the, you know... Um, though it has changed commercially, uh, mm-hmm. the hoodoo traditions, those reflect the old-fashioned um, uh, system better than others. But even they have changed out of recognition um, in many ways um, because people are always adding things and thinking, well, this other place like India has all these other answers, well, we'll put that into the soup and, and mix it all up. And <laughs> and uh, so, you know, as time goes on, culture just uh, rolls along and takes them with it. Yeah. Now, uh, you cite uh, Owen Davis on, on his uh, Cunning Folk, and he says that, you know, people consulted Cunning Folk because they provided explanations and solutions for the many misfortunes that occurred in their daily lives, as well as holding out the prospect through the attainment of love and money. Um, and, uh, you know, I know a couple of I think, cunning folk, and they do, you know, this is what happens still today, Um, you know, you will find these cunning women or cunning men, and they attain to the basic needs of humanity, which is basically health, wealth, money, love, Um, and, and, you know, this is all that we need to be happy, isn't it? (laughs) That's what (laughs) Yes, I... I think the pro- the thing here yeah. is that the the needs of people have not changed. It's part of the human nature, yes. and uh, but we don't control our destinies or the world or anything else as much as we would like. And so this has always been something that you could add. You could try to enforce a little continuity of your own interests uh, against what seemed like fate or 
Providence or any of these other overwhelming patents that uh, you didn't find comfortable what you're doing. <laughs> and so people have always tried to look for that. They've always tried yeah. to figure out what yeah. the future is going to be. Yes. You know, how is it going to treat me? And then try to manipulate it to suit their own needs. And <laughs> it's a perfectly human thing and yes. uh, exists everywhere, as you said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing, it's very interesting now, going into divination, which is one of the things that, you know, well, it's like very old. Yes. <laughs> just tell me, you know, Delphi, um, just tell me my future or, or please advise me on the destiny or please advise me on what is going to happen so that I can make better choices. And this is, you know, still today, <laughs> people are going to, you know, oh, tower readings or, or something else. And, and they do these things. And, and But then we go into the divination we go a little bit deeper because it was a little bit more complicated than that, wasn't it? Because they begin to say, okay, who stole my horse? <laughs> yes, it's practical questions. Back yes. in the time the coming folk were functioning, it's because they didn't have any other avenue to do so. Now, during the Middle Ages and probably in Catholic countries today, the church sometimes provides some of these functions, save you against evil witches or, you know, uh, trying to figure out who stole your horse in a day when there are no police, there's no FBI, there's no um, vehicle for doing for ordinary people. And uh, they, this is what they came up with. And uh, the cunning men often were very good at this. They knew what was going on in their community. They had their ear to the ground. They had their informants, you might say. And putting that together along with their... Um, sincere faith in uh, what something the stars or whoever was controlling things because something had to be controlling things why did they happen the way they did and so um, you would do these spells either protect yourself or to you know, find out who stole your fish or who stole <laughs> oh we lost did we lost uh, Jim we might have lost Jim that's okay Maybe we will get Jim back. Hold on. Um, maybe we did. We lost Jim. Okay, let's see if we can get him again. Oops, no. Okay. So let's uh, maybe uh, call Jim back. Hold on. Let me just get here uh, the number. Sorry, but sometimes, you know, live things happen when we are trying to do these things, and it's very interesting because it's all very... Let me see if I can get this going. Yeah, call. We're going to call him the same way and see if he can. Let's see if this will work. Has been Hello? forwarded to an automatic voice message Ooh, system. Well, Five, okay. zero, eight, seven. You're okay, okay. So we can't really. Okay, so hold on. Let me try it again and see if Jim will pick up. So let's see if I can pick up again. Sorry, everyone, um, but sometimes this happens. <laughs> we lose. Hello? Oh, the number is busy. Well, <laughs> okay, let's see if he's going to not be busy. <laughs> 
let's see. Well, this was the first time that this happened. That was very interesting. Well, um, we were talking about definition, and we were talking about um, the various methods of definition. Oh, hello. Yeah, hi. Hi. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it, it cut off. <laughs> yes, it did. But now we're here again. Yeah. So we were. Where were we? I don't remember. Um, oh, we were. Definition, wasn't it? Definition, yeah, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yeah. Definition. So uh, one of the things that I really, really like here on uh, your new book, it's of course the thing that you actually did. You know, you clarified. Okay, let's just look at the actual um, methods. You know, let's let's get mm. the methods out. And and one of the mo well, one of my favorites is I have seen um, a couple of them. One of them is. Um, uh, one of with the Bible, with the, it's called here is called the key and book charm, which is one of the oh, yeah. that I knew of about, and the book of course will be the Bible, um, but then you have here the will of fortune, which is very interesting. How did this work? The will of fortune is very, it's a very interesting uh, method that I never seen before. It was very common. Um, it turns up in in all sorts of forms. It was the idea mm -hmm. that. It, it is one of the ways to capture the instant of time and therefore mm -hmm. figure out what is going to happen by mm -hmm. whatever hidden forces are at work. And uh, it goes all the way back to, you know, Greco-Roman times and mm -hmm. uh, turns up not only in the, in the big manuals, but also it turns up in the little, you know, cheap uh, handbooks and uh, um, almanacs and things like that. So... The Wheel of Fortune was one of um, one of the ways of the uh, same thing with the book of the Seven Shears, which is actually found all around the world, of trying to capture the moment. And by capturing the moment in divination, you are able to define the future. And so you follow the directions of the Wheel of Fortune and pick out your numbers and do your interpretation and look up the answer. And uh, uh, it... Uh, it, like all <laughs> oracles, it is uh, uh, puzzling, but it tries <laughs> to cover everything, yes. Did you ever try any of these? Because these are very interesting. I mean, at least the definition ones, they're very, you know, did you try any of these little um, researched <laughs> uh, methods? <laughs> the, only, the only thing I ever tried before I got interested in the subject in general was astrology, and I got oh, very I good at it, and, you know, the apple... For instance, I was able to predict to the woman that came to me and wanted a chart and what was going to happen. I more or less told her she was going to get pregnant by uh, somebody in the Jay Giles band, and she was. <laughs> and at the time, she said, oh, no, that's impossible. I know these people, but that's it. And then later, it, it came <laughs> true. But having gone through and basically done shots for a lot of my friends, I sort of satisfied myself that that's how it works. And I've never much tried other things. Um, I just don't have the need for them. Unlike people who are un insecure in what they're doing, I always find that uh, things always seem to work out, so I don't worry about it. But I'm fascinated with the fact that when people are trying to control their lives, these are the things they turn to. Very good. Yes, yes. That that is true. That is true. And you know, necessity. You know, sometimes you know people just. Uh, uh, it's it's. I've seen you know people, and then um, so let let's talk about money here, right? Mm. So the, there's there's always some kind of exchange, right, uh, in these favors, 
right? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, you know, people often say they didn't charge for things. Well, as in the one about, like, Old Johnny, which is one of the cunning men's careers that I mentioned. Yes. Uh, he would say, oh, there's no charge. And if somebody takes them literally, he gets really pissed. Uh, the thing was that, uh, yes, this was a service provided, and you paid for the services was suitable and fitting. And uh, sometimes it was very inexpensive, and sometimes it was for free. That was because people got the pleasure of helping people and also the you know, social reputation for being wiser than everybody in the neighborhood. Um, so it could be for status, but it could also be for cash. Absolutely. Because <laughs> sometimes that's, that's what, oh, I remember what we were talking before and what I wanted to tell you is that you said that there's, there was sometimes a little bit of a mixture between what they knew, uh, in other words, the cunning, mm. right? So yes. what they knew around them, because they were very much, you know, aware of their own surroundings and, uh, you know, po politics, etc. And also on... Uh, you know, you said, you know, a, a very sincere faith on whatever, you know, stars or mm. whatever it was. So it was a mix of the two. They were actually very clever. Um, there were some that were a little bit more clever than others. <laughs> yes. So in your opinion, what does really define a cunning man or a cunning uh, a woman? And in well, this case, in a cunning man, you know. Yes, I think what it is, is it has to be somebody who is going beyond just the daily life and agricultural communities, a small craftsman or whatever else they might be doing, teaching or even preaching, they're curious about how things work. And they, and they also, they are ambitious. Uh, they come above their class by stepping outside their, what you might call, liminal characters. They exist on a, on a, on a balance between normal life and the supernatural or preternatural, as they would say back then. Mm -hmm. And um, having done this, they more or less are all self-taught. There's a few that seem to learn from other people, but mostly they get so curious. It's just like people who take up occult today. I mean, it doesn't pay particularly well. It does give you status if you wish it. And, um, but they have a curiosity that goes beyond people who are perfectly satisfied to live in the materialistic world. Yeah, and so true. having decided to take this path and train themselves in this business, um, they then take up the, the career of it. And mm. one thing that always has surprised me is that we don't have any memoirs of people who did this, uh, you know, to any great extent. Uh, since the last of the cunning folk probably lived into the 20th century, you'd think somebody would remember them or somebody would actually say, oh, yes, my grandmother actually did this and that's how they, you know, how they work. But those mm -hmm. kind of memoirs, I never turned up any in my research. It's fascinating. <laughs> That's very interesting. You know, do you do you count, you know, the, the for instance, the evil eye as a, a cunning man's, uh, you know, activity or not? You know, to take the evil oh. eye out, you know, that's, that's very European. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's just the same thing as, you know, the black witches, the evil witches. Um, yes. It, it's yes. a, you know, it's a, supernatural threat and therefore one of yes. the things that you go to somebody who's expert in these sort of things is to deal with things that are in this other world the otherworldly way of looking at things and uh, you know if you feel somebody has given you know the evil eye you you either get some charms that your aunt told you about or you go to a practitioner and say <laughs> I want this taken off me I think it's so-and-so did this and 
and uh, then they do their little ritual, and you feel much better about it. <laughs> well, most you know, sometimes you know, it's it's very it's very um, it, it's just impression. Um, and it's how you do it, you know. If you if you stick uh, a cow's tongue in someone's yeah. door, bleeding, yeah. you know, <laughs> and dropping yeah. blood in their forestab, um, even if you just do that, it is sufficient <laughs> for oh, to make them yeah. believe that they are actually, you know. So um, and uh, psychosomatic, you know, uh, mm. could could ensue, you know, into this person, say, <laughs> thinking that they were actually <laughs> cursed. <laughs> now, oh, yes. you, right? So th th these also are very very interesting things, you know, imagery. How did they feel? How, you know, it's just a pinning do a doll full of pins. If even if it is just a little doll full of pins without anything yeah. <laughs> into it, yeah. the the image of it uh, was recognized. Now, was was this something that you felt that was also across the board that people at the time would recognize? You know, of course, considering all of the habitus and all of that, but they would recognize these this this magical imagery that they would they would know that this was oh, active, yes, you know, absolutely. cunning man. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and you get the mostly it's against witches or curses and things like yes. that, and. You know, they've found lots of uh, bull's hearts stuck with thorns or pins and, you know, witch bottles with uh, the bellamine jugs that have uh, pins and urine and stuff like that in them. Um, everybody knew this. You didn't even have to go to professionals to do it. Everybody could tell mm -hmm. you, oh, in that case, you do this. And they'd all heard it. Everybody knew about it. But if you maybe didn't trust yourself to have this much influence, you went to somebody who you knew could do it. it. It felt better if it was done by an outside party, I think. Yes, yeah. No, absolutely. absolutely. You do it. But and then it was it was also that dichotomy about, about, you know, I will go there and I will pay somebody to do mm -hmm. this work for me, and that way I can just be, you know, my conscience will be okay to go to the church on Sunday. I won't be <laughs> able to be, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I think part Which, of it is pushing the, yes, any guilt there might be, but I don't think they really felt guilt. They just wanted it done. And but they wanted it done by, you know, go to it's like going to a regular you know, expensive hospital rather than just some country doctor. Um, yes. In this case, you know, you want the you want the best results, so you go to somebody yeah. you feel that you can trust, and you yeah. put all their trust in them. I don't know if you have any guilt about it, but uh, mm. uh, was there? Uh, I think there was one of the you know in the in the witch trial, sixteen ninety two. There was someone in Salem, a woman actually, that paid a witch or a cunning man or a cunning woman mm. to actually make a charm against witches, <laughs> and oh, she was yeah. and she wasn't not trialed for it, which is very interesting. I don't remember her name. I think it was Mary Seepley um, that was the woman who actually did that, um, interestingly enough. And she was never uh, charged uh, for it, and she, she did that. She was uh, quite healthy, uh, wealthy, I think, um, and she did it. Oh, <laughs> she actually <yes>. played... <laughs> This was part of their culture, and yeah, um, yeah. you know, if you wanted this done, yeah. um, there's always seems like there's always been, even in Puritan New England, somebody who's yes. willing to do it. Sometimes yeah. they would do it just because they like the person involved. You know, and they might get paid too. But uh, yes. I think the thing is that uh, it it's something that you know, it's not just uh, 
you know, the 92 Salem, but it's people like Mall Pitcher, uh, not the revolutionary Mall Pitcher, but the cunning woman Mall Pitcher yes. lives up there on the North Shore. And because there is definitely a demand for this sort of thing, there's a few people always willing to take it up despite the legal dangers. And as I say in the book, I mean, people keep saying, oh, the cunning men and wise women were burned as witches. No, they weren't. Uh, very few of them ever came to trial. Uh, they were, they, the neighbors thought of them as a beneficial thing, and they were put in a separate category, absolutely separate. We might, the Puritans, and us today, might call them both witches, but to them, um, one is a, um, uh, you know, a positive practitioner, and the other is a, a more or less invisible threat, and uh, they're, they're two different categories. Now the 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 there is a, a a huge list of things um that you have here. Uh, you know there's cures for everything <laughs> including for a large neck which is a go goiter that's the sign of the little yes. goiter but headache, heartburn, inflammation, hydrophobia, hernia. I mean you have all sorts of things itch. It doesn't matter. Healing. So this was the healing uh, part of it, but one of the most fascinating things here is is and we've heard this before of objects that are consecrated or imbued with some kind of power. We have yeah. that sometimes the monks would do a little thing, you know, sometimes a little curse, you know, if you <laughs> steal this book, you know, you will lose your hands. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, but there is other things like, for instance, the Carmelite monks. Hmm. Which I thought that was so cute. It's sweet notes. It was called sweet notes. Right? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> billet doux. Uh, yeah, yeah, the billet doux. Um, uh, so sweet notes. Um, and and they would do this these little formulas and on consecrated p um, paper, and they would put and bury them in the corner of a field, against hmm. or to give protection against bad weather and disturbing. Um, or, or insects or whatever it is and yeah. then you, you have all of the things how you do this which <laughs> it might serve somebody um, but it really is very interesting all of these um, objects that had um, you know magical powers and they were imbued with uh, magical power, uh, powers uh, how were they, these objects done? I mean uh, would you just you know pray over them uh, or did you find out how did they consecrate these? Yes, well, that's actually in the book about it how is, the, yes. the conception <laughs> billets are done and how yes. there's, you know, there's, there's curses yes. as well. But the whole point here is that if, um, you know, you're in a Christian culture and therefore everything comes from God, then if you can just turn a little bit of God's power to your own uses, and probably the best example, but it doesn't fit in what I wrote, is the idea of the you know the relics um, the relics of saints were considered to have power you know, went and you know went to and touched a bone that the saint had you know his arm bone or something on that line and these were put in beautiful gold and crystal uh, containers um, reliquaries and uh, this kind of thing in fact if you even took a cloth and rubbed it then the cloth became magic in a sort of contagious way uh, <laughs> In other words, you're simply channeling what you consider a uh, divine force. And the church used to have some of these, uh, the Agnes Days, for example. Yes, the Agnes you know, Days. And yeah. made mm -hmm. from the paschal candles. Yes. And, um, 
those were available. It was a competition to the cunning folk. But once the Puritans got rid of all that stuff, then, you know, all you had left was what the cunning folk could do for you. And yes. uh, yeah. But the idea that this power is floating around and can be channeled, um, and channels automatically into the bones of saints, is something that every, you know, pious Christian of the time believed in. It isn't hard to therefore transfer a little of that same concept to other things. Now, this, you know, I'm t I'm think I'm thinking about, uh, for instance, place places of power or places sacred places, uh, Christianity sacred places. I mean, you have relics all over, but you also have ground, holy ground, that people just by stepping on it will be imbued by some kind of, you know, either uh, healing power or whatever. Let's talk about morals here. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and the curse, the curse versus the blessing. Um, <clears throat> Which, in my opinion, is a different blessing, way of blessing. A curse yeah, it is, is a it's different it's way of blessing. It's, it's sort of a, you know, other side of the coin. Yeah. Of the, yes, that's right. Um, were there any morals? Yeah, oh, there's definitely a moral um, effigy, to, you know, effic mm -hmm. efficacy to all this. Yes. Um, they, they had to do it right. They, you know, in all of uh, the magic of the time, you still had to purify yourself to become less worldly, to... You know, you had to bathe, which wasn't always the easiest thing in those days. You had to make yourself ready, just as a saint had to make himself ready to um, you know, provide some sort of exorcism or things like that. And so um, if you weren't moral in some fashion, and how they got around the details is sort of fascinating, um, then it wouldn't work. And therefore, in order to deal with a holy power, you had to become somewhat holy yourself. You had to sort of mimic what was necessary. And yeah, so the yeah. same things that priests would do to prepare themselves for religious rites were the same things magicians did to prepare themselves for uh, oh, necromancy. Yes. Now, the beautiful thing about this book, Jim, is that you can see the very simple charms and blessings and all of these things in the beginning of the book and as you go further into it uh, you will begin to see that the cunning fool begin to be uh, or what they did begin to be more and more and more complex and mm. you, you, you begin to see that they begin to use astronomy, they begin to use things from the stars um, you know, auspices, hours things and then you go into contrast and conjurations were actually very simple in the beginning. Now they're turning into long and length um, conjurations with a lot of names of power that, of course, you know, will include a lot of uh, names of God. Um, but now you have a little bit more of, a, you know, a little bit more of... A, um, uh, something more complex and we're, we're dealing with spirits we're dealing with exorcisms and 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 fairies and demons which you know sometimes are very interchangeable um yeah. but um but it's very interesting to see this this uh this uh evolution um which almost goes to and uh, and then you have sacred symbols and you have like the all of these um uh sigils and and yeah. things like that so 
were was there and and then the you know then they had um very simple tools in the beginning was uh, just the paper or maybe you know something some herb or something um now you have like special uh tools like you know sacred uh, knives and things like that with things inscribed in them and all of that so uh, did it get more and more complex actually um no the book does but uh those all existed simultaneously it's mm-hmm. hard to do anything that, that doesn't show that. But um, they all existed simultaneously. It's like all of ritual magic is basically a function of the exorcist's power. And in order to make this work, you had to contr- sort of accumulate this power, which I call virtus in the, in the book. Yes. <laughs> and you, you brought as many things in together that would have it. It's like putting more and more batteries or more and more current into what you were doing. And uh, that is something that, uh, as you got into more demanding and complicated things to do, you had to have more and more vertice on your side, you might say, or lined up. And uh, <coughs> it, it, it goes back to the, the concept, of, like I said, of exorcism. And it, to do this, um, if you were working with astrological vertus, which I think is a central feature of the whole thing, if yes. anything is, mm-hmm. um, you go back to Ficino, and Ficino um, takes this very carefully. And in his third book of the, you know, the, um, his book on the book's life, um, he tells you how to gather all of this power together and how to use it. And uh, he does it for healing but it's just as easily done for other uses as well. <laughs> but if you're going to exercise somebody, you've got to get uh, all the power on your side. And they did that with objects and also, of course, with sacred names. Yeah, because um, these names were very... I mean, some some of these names are very... Uh, there are strange names that I, I don't know if... Um, I mean, were, were there classes of, of cunning men? Because, you know, it seems to me that there is, like, this very complicated, um, almost ecclesiastic, um, mm. you know, kind of uh, knowledge, and then there is, like, the simple, <laughs> the simpler <laughs> yeah. people. The other thing that it's very curious also, Jim, is the treasure hunting, which is something <laughs> that you see... <laughs> that you see everywhere... I remember that I, um, I I bought a book in Portugal, very, very famous one, the book of San Ciprian, um, mm. and it, it had a big section on how to treasure hunt and how to find all of these treasures all across uh, Portugal. Nobody mm. found them, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, but they, the, the method was there. Um, was this also uh, a practice in America? Yes, in fact, there's a whole chapter on the, or a whole half chapter on the practice of treasure hunting in America. It came to America. Um, And yet, in England, of course, or in Europe in general, it made sense because people are even today turning up hordes of coins and jewelry and stuff that have been buried either before an attack or somebody was trying to save the stuff and then didn't tell anybody where it was. And so I give examples of what they did in England. And it did come to America, and it was an actual fad um, around 1800, where people were doing this all over New England and New York and New Jersey. <laughs> yes, and uh, yes, it yes. even bled over into uh, what became the Mormon way of doing things, because uh, Joseph Smith was a treasure hunter before he became a prophet. Mm. And 
treasure hunting, that's why I give it a separate chapter, because the treasure hunting system is so fascinating in itself that even the people who would, you know, the, this sort of thing was illegal, but if you were promised to pay some of the um, <laughs> proceeds to the lords and kings, then they would license you for it, like when um, William Lilly tried to find treasure in Westminster Abbey and uh, uh, was unsuccessful, but, uh, you know, it, it, it has straddled the line between, you might say, greed and theology. <laughs> Yes, yeah. Now, you do have a couple of other things here uh, that are fascinating. One of them, it's uh, an appendix. It's Appendix mm. 2, and it's called White Witches. Yeah. An apology to Louise uh, Ubner. Um, what did you try to... I mean, this, you know, it's. it looks to me that it's It's a very interesting um, appendix. Uh, it, it is about Wicca, and it is about mm. uh, modern... Uh, what they call it the 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 new religion or Wiccan the new the new religion. Um, why was this an apology? Well, it's because Louise Hubner. Um, I read her book, and when I was thought the what I consider the witch party line, you know, the whole uh, what Gardner and everybody else had said, I thought, oh, she's you know mistaken because she was doing very typical Italian traditional magic out there in Los yeah. Angeles, an official yeah. witch of Los Angeles, or whatever she was known as. Mm -hmm. And so I dismissed it, and I was amused that uh, she'd got the story so wrong. And then I found out that she was actually an example of the real tradition, whereas the rest of this had been sort of cobbled together. And so I tried in that essay, which I wrote in 93, um, what I had been thinking for years about, well, what really was the historical case, and what did Gardner or whoever preceded him put together, and why, and, uh, you know, try to explain how, since you can find just about everything in the Wiccan Book of Shadows in published sources available to Gardner at his time, um, that, uh, you know, plus a few things written new, but uh, it was like, this is the real history, and it is different from what I had uh, originally thought. And I thought, well, Louise was right. <laughs> you know, she she was actually more honest about it than some of these other people. Mm -hmm. And so I had that. That was published because somebody asked me to do it. And I never did get paid or anything for it. They even didn't send me the book. They sent me a wrong book. Really? I had to buy one. <laughs> yes, which I found a little annoying. Oh, goodness. But uh, <laughs> I'd given this as a talk to some people at one of these meetings, uh, conferences, and yes. got hooted down by people who believed that, uh, you know, the Wiccan party line was true, and this was a lot of nonsense on my part. And so I thought, well, I will put in the footnotes, mm. and that's what I was doing. It That had been worked for many years in this 30-year process. The actual composition of the handbook only took about two and a half years. Mm. But it's a very interesting, very interesting article if you're listening to us right now. Uh, it's Appendix 2. It's called White Witches. Very, very good. Now, Jim, um, what did you learn, you know, from, from the, the, you know, the, um, did, did this satisfy you in terms of, ask, uh, you know, answering your, the question that was prompt, uh, you know, that prompts you to write this book? Were you satisfied with this? Yes, I was. Actually, I had come to the conclusions that I have in the book, except for the analysis of the evolution and uh, 
how things are supposed to work, which I had to work up for the book itself. Yes. <laughs> I had more or less traced the historical roots to my own satisfaction, and I didn't know if I'd ever get around to writing it down. But then I thought, after reading um, the various things like Davies or, or um, Hutton, that oh, these are fascinating histories. They cover the thing beautifully, except anybody who's reading them who hasn't done the research I have, or the research they did, um, was still left in the dark about what actually went on. And so I thought, that's what's needed. That's the place I can make a contribution. I have uh, my favorite, uh, and I don't know if it is because I'm from Portugal, and of course this is still mm. done today. Um, yeah. And I don't know, um, but uh, at the time, I don't know if you, you, you um, maybe you do know this, but uh, you are not supposed to uh, write it down. The prayer that it said in the evil eye removal, you're supposed mm. to listen to it, and as you listen, you will listen one and twice and thrice and, you know, many times, and then that's the way mm. you will memorize it. So from the mouth of another, doing it and observing them doing it. Um, so that we're not supposed to write it down or... You know, yeah, and you only learn by looking at it and listen to it more than I don't know, twenty <laughs> times yeah, or yeah. more. You know what I mean? That's how it was passed on. But it's very in interesting because my favorite, um, uh, my favorite uh, spell here on or charm here on on your book is precisely that. It's overlooking on or the evil eye, and and mm -hmm. it is a spell for evil eye. It's very very interesting. Do you have um? A favorite one that he said, "Oh, this is very interesting." I mean, you have so many in here, but <laughs> <laughs> that you said, "Oh, I didn't know that that could be," you know. <laughs> I think, uh, for the most part, um, no. I mean, that's an interesting thing. The fact that you have to keep it oral. Um, yes. That's the stuff that's you know many times it's been lost. Yes. At least yeah. in, in in you know since uh, modern occultism got into theosophy and everything went or. Um, um, mesmerism and all yes. that stuff got pushed out and people were not tra you know training down and yet even though they say that nearly everywhere you can find these things written down because somebody would write them down usually somebody who didn't like it but <laughs> yeah, that's right <laughs> um, nearly everything is is, is eventually uh, in some form uh, recorded and uh, it, it's like the opposite side that unless you're a book learning even if you're illiterate you had to pretend you were literate because that's where the secret knowledge obviously lay. Yes. So there's different ways of looking at it. <coughs> oh, dear. And, <laughs> and, and my mouth is getting dry. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, yes, no, the, there is obviously uh, conflicting or, <coughs> you know, the, the, these run parallel. Mm -hmm. You can only learn it um, orally from a teacher, maybe of the other... Uh, gender and things like that. Yes, yeah. Simultaneously, you can only do it if it's been recorded in a big, mysterious book. I mean, the books of those times, the magical books, were themselves consecrated and considered to have power in themselves yes. as, as as objects as well as being, um, you know, recipes for how to do things. Yes, yeah. And so it depends on the power will fade if you don't do the things right. Sometimes it's oral. Sometimes it's written. Absolutely. And this is very interesting because um, I know of some cunning uh, folks um, 
in back in Portugal and some people that actually still practice this today and and that's the, you know some some of the things are passed orally only uh you can you know mm. there is no little book or anything like that um but um other things are yes and uh, and of course yeah the books were uh imbued that's right yeah yeah so you don't have a a favorite one do you no no i have so many i couldn't pick out any one particular <laughs> one that uh you know i find uh, more more fascinating i think the one that uh, got me most interested um uh, though was the one on scapulomancy you know the yes. using the um uh, the shoulder blade of a sheep to, f to predict the future. Yes. Because I'd always re heard about that. And until I found an author who had actually gone in and detailed this, I always thought, well, that's something to know about. Because often in books about history of magic, you see a whole series of terms. You know, you can tell fortunes by fire, by water, by earth. They won't tell you anything about how to do it. <laughs> but uh, that one um, survived long enough to uh, actually get details, and that, that I was very pleased to find. Very good, yeah, yeah. And um, also the way that they engrave these talismans and things, that, that was also um, done in a certain way, under certain auspices, etc., mm. etc. Et so um, did anything, if it could be possible, of course it is, but um, went unpublished on this book that you said, oh, Damn it! I already sent it to Avalonia. I can't really put this in. <laughs> oh um, yes, I I haven't stopped reading, and uh, every now and then, of course, a lot of things didn't go in anyways. It would have been much longer if I'd put all the stuff I'd found in. I had to be very selective, even to keep it down to 550 pages in that t tiny print that they decided to use. Yes, um, it's uh, there's, there's much more. All I could do was samples, because um, I suppose if we did it fully, you'd have to republish all of the sources I used. <laughs> yes, that's true, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Reprint the whole, you know, 24 volumes or whatever it might be of, <laughs> of different sources. Each one, like when I talk about, say, palmistry, I only take an example, a full example is possible, but, the you know, the books I took them from were much longer, so... Uh, and then there are other examples I thought, well, that would have been nice if I had run across it or remembered it, because when you're trying to balance all this stuff in your mind, you forget stuff. Absolutely, yes, yes. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking with Jim Baker, the author of The Cunning Man's Handbook, published by Avalonia Books. And um, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for being on, sitting on the black chair. I don't know if you're sitting on a black chair, but, you know, the black chair is the no, seat of wisdom. Blue. Oh, it is blue? Okay, that's fine. Um, uh, so, thank you so much for being on the black chair and uh, and, and accepting our invitation and, and be so um, uh, so <laughs> generous with us <laughs> with all of these wonderful uh, discoveries on your book and, and uh, are you going to do more or is this it for the cunning folk? Um, it's probably that's it for the cunning folk okay. you know it would just be more the same I might do something else sometime, but I haven't figured out what would be a real contribution. Mm -hmm. Or in those other areas, I don't really know how to approach mm -hmm. subjects, mm -hmm. but uh, such as how modern conjuration has been changed, especially with things like chaos magic, which yes. I find very curious. Yes, very interesting. But, um, yeah, um, 
you know, whether you're, but I, I like history and tradition, and therefore I, I more or less stuck to that end of things. Very good, very good. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for being with us and giving us this wonderful conversation. Very good. <laughs> thank you very much. You. So, very good. Yeah. this is it uh, for uh, our show. Uh, I will talk to you next week with more on the Black Chair. Until then, have a wonderful week. Bye bye.